A helping hand, political theater, or both? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com and reporting from Dallas today, by the way. And back there in Austin is Jeremy, where you can find him at houstonchronicle.com. It's sort of unusual for you to be in Austin, Jeremy. I think you were in a different city in Texas every day for the last seven or eight days, something like that. Yeah, I, I started kind of feeling like an H-E-B trucker. You know, they, I don't know which city I'm in. I'm just dropping off another load of <laughs> stories in another city somewhere. <laughs> so, no, Don't tell me that because I will uh, dial that number on the back of the truck and let them know exactly what your driving was like. Um, speaking of driving on the roads, did you see that the migrant crisis, the busing crisis, and uh, in fact, there's flights now out of Texas, uh, these undocumented immigrants who are heading to the blue states. This is the way it's being sold by the Republicans. Uh, here in this red state, we're going to teach those folks in blue states a lesson, right? Um, that uh, you have the governor of Texas sending migrants to uh, Chicago, to D.C., to New York. Do you remember when Governor Abbott first talked about this? It was all the way back in April, and I was uh, quick to say this is just a stunt. Now, I was correct. Jeremy, don't go thinking that I might have been wrong. I saw Maya's face there for just a second. I think our producer, Maya, thinks that there's a possibility I was incorrect. No, no, slow down. I was right. It is a stunt, but it has had effects that I might not have expected. Here's what Abbott said back in April when he announced this busing program for migrants. To help local officials whose communities are being overwhelmed by hordes of illegal immigrants who are being dropped off by the Biden administration, Texas is providing charter buses to send these illegal immigrants who have been dropped off by the Biden administration to Washington, D.C. Now, the Democratic mayor in D.C., Muriel Bowser, was asked about this this past week on the local Fox TV station, Jeremy. And you'll hear some other noise. Uh, of course, this is what happens during live TV. It's, it's a little hard to hear the mayor. Uh, but see if you can make out what she's saying when she was asked about what this has caused in her city. Well, you heard me say uh, throughout this experience since April that we have a national problem uh, that is going to require a national response. And uh, we're going to do all that we can in D.C. to make sure that people have a humane uh, welcome and transfer to their final destinations. But uh, we see in the months ahead that this, this problem uh, could worsen. Jimmy Kimmel on ABC asked Beto O'Rourke what he thought about all this. I just know that we are so much better than that. Sending these migrants to D.C., to Chicago, to New York, now to the vice president's house, isn't doing anything for them. It's not doing anything for us. It's not addressing the underlying challenge that we have in terms of our immigration system. The last time that we rewrote the immigration laws of this country, Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States of America. We know that folks are coming here to work. They're coming here to join family. They're coming here to seek asylum because to return to their countries of origin would mean certain death for them or their kids. So how about Texas, a border state, a state full of immigrants that has made us so successful and strong and also safe? What if we led the way on ensuring that if you want to come to this country, you have to follow our laws. But on our part, we will lead the way in rewriting our laws. They reflect our values, our interests, our needs. There should be a safe, legal, orderly path for those who want to come to this country to do better for themselves and do better for all of us by their very presence. 
Jeremy, it occurs to me in thinking and talking with people about this busing program for migrants out of Texas to other places that the um, way that it's talked about is so critical uh, because if you said, and let's just take all the same facts, if you said you have a government program that is going to give free bus rides to migrants to places where they'd be welcome with open arms, that government ser- services would be available, job, op- job opportunities would be available, you might mistake that for a democratic program, right? That You might have people say, wow, this is some kind of a liberal thing, and maybe even the Catholic charities would be involved with that and trying to make it happen, that, that, that these migrants would have a better life in this other place that they're going. That's if you talked about it just laying out the facts. And if someone wanted to spin it that way, they could. And we did actually see where some migrant uh, activists some folks who have been advocates for immigrants said that this is something they've been looking for for a long time. I did not have that on my bingo card for 2022. But that's not the way Governor Abbott is talking about it. That's not the way that Ron DeSantis from Florida is talking about it. And you were looking into what DeSantis is doing, which is I think this might be a first. This is where DeSantis is you know, sort of following Abbott it's always been the other way around that Abbott would follow uh, DeSantis. But DeSantis had laid out for some uh, donors of his at an event, some political contributors, that he was going to do something similar about moving migrants from the southern border up to a liberal community in the Northeast. Yeah, he he talked about this just last week in Orlando, and he kind of made it sound like it was something he was thinking about doing uh, to try to, quote, help Texas. Uh, and so unbeknownst to all of us, <clears throat> You know, he really did put it in motion the next week. You know, so on Wednesday, uh, he had uh, you know, people in San Antonio convincing migrants from Venezuela to hop onto this flight that would first take them to Crestview, Florida. And then, you know, uh, DeSantis would use, you know, state tax put- taxpayer money there to ship them to Martha's Vineyard. You know, and they're mm-hmm. thinking it was like, hey, they were taking these migrants who were now in Florida and sending them somewhere else. But those migrants didn't get to Florida on their own. Ron DeSantis right. literally was hanging out uh, or had people hanging out in San Antonio on San Pedro Avenue, you know, picking up, you know, Venezuelan migrants to get them there. And so and, and this is very different than how Abbott has been doing his program. Abbott has been kind of working with the NGOs, the the non-government organizations that are trying to do some of the, you know, uh, border outreach assistance. You know, you think about the the Catholic charities of the world and all those other, you know, groups that are really trying to help these migrants kind of get acclimated Mm -hmm. and settled and get their court dates kind of lined up and everything. Abbott's actually gone through the process of trying to you know, make sure they're working with these people and that they're, they're having these migrants sign waivers and make sure they understand where they're going and everything. What we're hearing from the, the, the migrants that caught the flight to Martha's Vineyard on Ron DeSantis's dime is that they did not necessarily know they were going to Martha's Vineyard. You know, we're getting all kinds of stories. Some thought they were going to Boston. Some thought they were just going somewhere near New York. You know, and they clearly weren't given the option of getting off the flight in Florida. As I can, so it's just a really different kind of heavy-handed approach. And the thing we kind of mm-hmm. learned in the last 24 hours is that although Abbott and DeSantis have talked about this issue in their staffs, have kind of and generally talked about the busing strategy – what the Abbott people weren't aware of is that DeSantis was doing this in San Antonio on Wednesday and how they mm-hmm. were doing it. So this is kind of a little bit of a surprise deal going on with everything right now. And I think it's going to be kind of interesting to see 
kind of how these two governors kind of work on this, if they are working on this at all together. <laughs> Sounds to me like they are competitors and might be competitors for the same job come 2024. That's what a lot of the speculation is on this. And, you know, you do have some folks talking about the idea and there's some polling on this to suggest that it's not just a, a an issue that resonates with the base of the Republican Party, although it is the base of the GOP that's the most inflamed about illegal immigration and border security, of course, that's been the case for a long time. I can uh, maybe uh, see where this might extend beyond the base of the Republican Party, that border security is an important thing. And I, I do think that that's true. And even some Democrats would say, yes, absolutely, you have to have border security. The way you do it is important, of course. Uh, but is this a case where these two guys, Abbott and DeSantis, think that they have their reelections this year basically locked down? And they're looking ahead to 2024, and this is the kind of thing that they can sort of gin up support in the GOP base for a presidential primary. Yeah, you know, yes and no. I think the no part of it is that I think both of them know that you know, like their states are closer than they've ever been. You know, it's like they still have to kind of win these elections. You can't take anything for granted in Florida because every race is always close there. You know, in Texas, things have gotten closer. And both of these cam campaigns know that, look – Republican or Democrat, this border issue is a winner for Republicans. If they keep pushing this, you know, they know they're, they're, they're kind of getting attention and they're getting to their mm -hmm. base and they're getting some support. I think this is all generated for this election cycle. They both they can't even think about 2024 if both of them don't easily win these races that they have. And both of them are in a much closer race. And I would tell you that most national prognosticators are kind of looking at it's like these are closer races than either state probably expected to see, mm -hmm. you know, for, for different reasons. Florida's again, by its nature, no governor there has won a race by more than one point two percent since 2006. You know, it's like it's going to be a close race. In Texas, we know this is going to be close, and this is a winning issue for them. Every poll shows, you know, complain about the immigrants coming, blame the Biden administration, you know, for what they're doing, and yeah, send them wherever you want to because it's getting good play. You even saw Bill Maher on his show kind of giving some praise to Greg Abbott this last weekend. If you saw it, mm -hmm. it's like where he was kind of standing up for well, well, you know, all these liberal communities can can now see what Texas is going <laughs> through, and you're like, okay. This is exactly what Abbott wanted. He's scoring big with the conservative media, and now he's getting the Bill Maher type stuff working in his favor, too. Right. It's certainly good political theater. And in some ways, it is much better political theater than trying to build a wall in Texas. That was, I think, just yes. sort of played out. And, and, and I think it might. It, and tell me if I'm wrong or, or just crazy, Jeremy, but it might teach Republicans something about trying to be original. We have so many of the office holders in the Republican Party trying to just mimic whatever Donald Trump had been doing uh, on a variety of issues, including uh, undocumented uh, immigrants and including uh, you know, border security. And when he was trying to build the wall, uh, well, I don't know, maybe that helped him in his primary. This busing strategy is a new thing. Uh, and so people are kind of going for it. Well, and, and look at what happened, just uh, the threat of building a wall. What what was the result of that? What do people do when they get a wall? They go around it. <laughs> and so th as they were trying to well, build yes. this wall in the Rio Grande Valley, guess what er all these migrants did and their smugglers did? They said, you know what? Let's go to Del Rio because there is no wall. <laughs> Let's push everybody through there. <laughs> so guess what? If you build a wall, 
people kind of go around it. <laughs> it's not like they're going to oh, go, oh, me. darn, we don't want freedom anymore. Let's all go back mm-hmm. to Venezuela. It's like it's not Listen, the wall's I, not going to stop you if you're trying to escape a dictator who wants to kill you all. <laughs> sure. And there's no misunderstanding here. Both of these are stupid, right? Trying to build a wall is not going to keep people out of the United States and busing migrants to other places. If you look at the sheer numbers, it's not actually you know a solution for anything, right? It's, it's, it's as far as how many undocumented folks end up in Texas and then move on to other places in the interior on their own, uh, you know, without the buses. Uh, these folks end up in a lot of these places anyway. This is just kind of putting it like in a spotlight for people all across the country. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I think I don't think enough can be said about who's crossing right now, too. It's just like, like, you know, you know, look at the thematic that we've been seeing. We've been talking about on the show now for, you know, a, almost a month now. It's like what's coming across the border in Del Rio and Eagle Pass? It's Venezuelans and Cubans. You know, it's like, you know, wh- what are the stories of people in D.C. and you know, Martha's Vineyard? You know, who are those people? They're Venezuelans. They're Cubans. What is happening? Oh, look at that. It's like there's a, uh, a crisis in Venezuela in Cuba that's really adding to this right now. And this is very different with how we dealt with these populations in the past, right? You know, you know, think about Cubans, you know, just five years ago where they were able to get to Miami and we encouraged it to, from the get to Miami. Now, if you're mm-hmm. a Cuban, you can't do it the same way. So if you come across the border, now we're going to hassle you. We're going to make this hard for you. And the buses aren't going to Miami. <laughs> and you can almost see how DeSantis, you know, if he was trying to pre- be preemptive, he doesn't want to say the obvious here, which is like, okay, these Venezuelans coming across are probably going to want to come to Miami because we have a huge Venezuelan mm-hmm. population. So if I send them to Martha's Vineyard, you know, guess what? They're not coming to Florida. It's like there's going to be some pushback for him internal politics in Miami with like Venezuelan politics. It's it's actually significant there that you know wait you're taking these Venezuelans who just crossed the desert across the jungle to get away from a dictator and you're sending them to Massachusetts instead of to Miami mm-hmm. where we have like Venezuelan communities that can help take care of them. What a weird mm-hmm. decision it, when you look at it more of a global perspective. Yeah, right. And um, there is something to be said for the fact, as you mentioned, that the Republican base needs to be motivated when the Democratic base seems to be so motivated about other things. Right. And and those issues are things we've talked about. Um, gun violence. Let's let's take that as number one. Did you see all over Texas there were scares about potential school shootings, I think, in uh, and I saw uh, some examples in Waco, look like in the Austin area and in Houston. There was fears of a school shooting uh, there, as reported on KHOU television. We begin with breaking news this afternoon from Heights High School. That's where we're tracking a large police presence after reports of an active shooter turned out to be false. But it caused quite a commotion this afternoon. There was some reporting later, Jeremy, that apparently there was some kind of hoax going on, uh, that people were calling uh, around to different communities and saying that at least 10 people had been shot at whatever school uh, was supposedly targeted in whatever community turned out to not be true. But to a point you've made over and over again, people are just freaked out. And a point I made online earlier this week is that, hey, folks are as freaked out about that as they are about, and in some ways even more than they are about the electricity grid. When we would see during the summer uh, that we might all have to conserve Uh, that the grid might go down. Um, You might have people die because they don't have any air conditioning, just like people died when they were freezing to death during winter storm Uri. And all this goes to the point of the aftermath of Uvalde and what has happened there. Yeah, it is absolutely 
so painful for me to think about what those families in Uvalde, when they're seeing these reports, you know, of potential, you know, school violence in other places, what they're having to go through. Imagine the PTSD that they are feeling when they start hearing these stories about a, a school in Houston is evacuating because of the potential shooter. You're probably <laughs> reliving every minute of what you just went through just three months ago. You know, it is just so sad and tragic that, you know, some, you know, jackasses decided that this would be the thing you'd kind of do to these families. It's like you were just torturing these people who are not going to be okay right now. They are going through a lot. And I think, you know, it's, I know we've hit this a lot of times, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we have to understand this just happened. This is today's real life for those 19 families, you know, that mm -hmm. lost kids and for the families of those two teachers. Every day right now is there's too much reality. And to see this playing out in all these different cities has just got to be painful for these folks. Absolutely. Um, and did you see that there was reporting uh, out of Central Texas, I think, was it KXAN in Austin, got the uh, information about a meeting that had been held uh, within DPS, the Department of Public Safety. Uh, I think they got the minutes from the meeting. Yes. And it turned out that uh, Steve McGraw, Colonel McGraw, the head of DPS, had said that nobody was going to lose their job. Um, at DPS, uh, even despite how bad the response was in Uvalde, which, of course, we know officers from multiple law enforcement agencies, including DPS, were all on the scene for more than an hour outside that classroom as these kids were being executed inside. Well, uh, Simone Prokupes is a reporter at uh, CNN. He's been all over this uh, ever since the beginning in Uvalde. To their credit, CNN's had a person on the ground there uh, ever since uh, when uh, you know some other national outlets uh, have not, although I don't want to take anything from the others. Uh, some of them have, but but he's been just a bulldog on this, actually. And uh, Shimon Prokupes goes and he finds McGraw at a meeting somewhere and confronted him about these minutes. And he, he walked up to McGraw, Jeremy, and he showed him a copy of the minutes. And he said, look, is this right? That you were telling people within the agency that nobody is going to lose their job over what happened there. It's not a memorandum. It's someone writing. It's a minute. The no, kind of the minutes. It's someone that took my no, minutes. So, yeah. But you've seen this. I have not. So you haven't seen your own words. I haven't seen, no, I haven't seen the minutes. This was done by either captains or know, majors. Right. But you know what you said. I mean, I know exactly what I said. So then McGraw takes a, just a minute to look at the document. And, you know, he's kind of, you know, he's just thumbing through it and goes, well, what's, what's here? What does this say? What does that say? And then, and then he denies ever having said that no one is going to lose their job. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's correct. That's, that's correct. And you said no one is losing their jobs. No, I didn't say that. You're denying that you said that. I'm denying that I said that. So he says he didn't say that. On NBC5 television in Dallas, Abbott was asked about whether people should lose their jobs in these various law enforcement agencies because of what happened. Because, Jeremy, how many times have we heard the families crying out, not just for gun reform, but also for accountability in the system? Last week, Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo was fired. Should other law enforcement officials who responded to the Robb Elementary School shooting be held accountable for what's considered overall just a failed response? So there needs to be accountability up and down the ballot uh, or up and down uh, the entire process of the people who responded uh, to this shoot. What a slip up there, Jeremy. He says there should be uh, accountability up and down the ballot. You know that it has to be on his mind. Look, you know, I don't want to read too much into a slip up, but it has to be on his mind that people are in some ways blaming him, 
blaming Abbott and his administration for the way things were handled in Uvalde. And if you go back to the day after the shooting, you remember uh, when the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker of the House in Texas, and uh, you had state senators, the attorney general, U.S. senators as well, uh, all holding a political event there that turned into a different kind of political event when Beto O'Rourke showed up and put his finger in their face and said, this is because of you. You could have stopped this. You know, if you go back and look at the legislature's inaction on any kind of gun safety reform following the shootings in Sutherland Springs, El Paso, Midland, Odessa, and Beto says, look, y'all didn't do anything. I wonder if it's in Abbott's mind that a lot of voters are thinking the same thing, that y'all should have done something about this. And, and here's where I think the political landscape has definitely shifted on this. I made this observation before I'll make it again. I don't have to guess that Abbott's campaign views this differently from the way they did earlier in the year before the Uvalde shooting. Remember at that time, they were lighting up Beto O'Rourke for having said, hell yes, we'll take your AR-15 and your AK-47. And I don't hear Abbott doing that now. Yeah, absolutely. You can see that this issue has shifted, right? There's no doubt. You know, it's like you think about the impact this has on, uh, you know, families with kids in schools. You know, it's like to me, that's just like a it's not just suburbanites. You know, this is like everybody. You know, this is a large section of the population who are going to vote. And Abbott's going to somehow make sure that this isn't on their mind. When they go to vote in November, they, you know, it's like, it's funny because like when he's saying there needs to be accountability up and down the ballot, that's almost verbatim from a Beto O'Rourke speech. <laughs> Beto O'Rourke has been saying there needs to be accountability up and down the ballot, you know, for everybody who failed us in this process. I heard him say that in Del Rio, you know, it's like, which is just outside of Uvalde, you know, it's like, and so you end up in the situation where it's like, you know. I think we all know this is going to be an issue, and like, and, and I think the Abbott campaign has to hope that is not the predominant issue because right now the state's response looks as bad as the local response. It was one thing when Abbott and DPS could say, "Look how bad the Uvalde Independent School District handled this," but then yes. when it became clear that there were 91 DPS officers there and mm-hmm. none of them took command of the situation to save the children. That becomes the moral of the story. You know, 91 DPS officers did not take command of the situation, even though it was clearly a leaderless event at that moment. Where was the leadership? Who was supposed to take the reins? And for DPS to say, well, it's not us. It's that guy. It's the absolute pass the buck garbage that nobody in politics, right or left, wants to hear ever when they're dead children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Republicans voting for a Democrat for a statewide office. This is something that we haven't seen in any significant way in Texas. The people who are crossing over and some significant people, um, among other folks, to endorse a Democrat in a statewide race is someone who, again, it's not insignificant. Um, Glenn Whitley has been the Republican county judge in Tarrant County for 25 years. Now, he is retiring. You have to say that right off the bat. It's easier for these folks to do this when when they're retiring. But he's a popular county judge, and he and uh, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, have clashed many, many times. I, I think what's uh, interesting about this uh, from uh, from an insider standpoint, which I get called the, in, you know, the gossip uh, guy in Austin, the in, you know, capital insider, is it, it, this sort of thing doesn't surprise me because I know that Whitley and Patrick don't like each other. But I think what insiders may get wrong about it is that as insiders, we sort of think that, well, this isn't surprising at all. 
But outsiders, people who are just average voters in Dallas-Fort Worth, they haven't really paid attention to the fact that those two guys don't like each other. So it may be more surprising to them, right, Jeremy, to see that a Republican says, hey, I'm going with the Democrat in the race for lieutenant governor. So Glenn Whitley was on WFAA in Dallas when he revealed that he was going to vote for Mike Collier, the Democrat who is challenging Patrick for his office. And Whitley told Jason Whiteley and the crew over there uh, at WFAA that Patrick simply hasn't delivered on his signature issue, which is property taxes. And, and you know, basically, Dan Patrick came on the scene in 2006 with Empowered Texans. And since that point in time, they basically declared war on local elected officials. They blamed local governments for all the property tax problems. When in effect, and you know, they they vowed that they're going to lower property taxes. Of course, they don't have any property taxes at the state level. Judge Whitley said the state is passing along costs for a variety of services to the counties, and that's happening under Patrick's leadership. So when they pass a law down there and they don't fund it, are they force us to keep their prisoners, that's a state-mandated property tax increase. We used to call it unfunded mandates, but it's better understood if I say that we're paying 20 million plus a year because the state is not paying anything, and yet they're sitting down there talking about all the cash that they've got. Judge Whitley is uh, articulating something that I would have thought that statewide Democrats might have articulated a little better up to this point, Jeremy, which is this. If this has been such a tough economic scenario for Texans, uh, you know, specifically, and Americans at large, then why does the state of Texas have so much money in its bank account? Right? It, it, wouldn't you expect that Democrats like Beto O'Rourke or Mike Collier or anybody who's running as a Democrat would say, would, why wouldn't they just say, Maybe taxes are too high. If they have all this extra money in the bank and they can't even tell you specifically what they're going to do with it yet, but, they, but they, you know, there's a projected surplus for next year of nearly $30 billion for Texas, then maybe taxes are too high. Maybe sales taxes are too high. That's the primary uh, driver of revenue for, for the state. Um, maybe property taxes are too high. As, as Glenn Whitley says, uh, look, the state isn't paying for these services out of their big surplus. So you have to pay for uh, a higher, uh, you know, you, you have to pay for it at the local level through higher property taxes. Democrats haven't really done that just yet. So it's interesting to me that a uh, Republican who's now acting sort of as a surrogate for a Democratic candidate says, hey, your taxes are too high. And these are the reasons because of decisions that have been made in Austin by Republican leadership. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've started to hear Beto O'Rourke kind of bring it up on the trail. He does it kind of in a, an interesting way because he says like, you know, look, you know, it's like, you know, your property taxes keep going up, you know, and it's, you know, you, these Republicans keep saying they're trying to cut your property taxes. They just don't know how. It's like they don't understand how this works. And like, he goes, I can cut your property taxes by expanding Medicaid and you know reducing the pressure on local hospitals that, and counties to raise taxes on you to pay for that indigent care. And it's like I can you know you know uh, fund education better. You know, by the state, like lowering its share of the education dollars, it's forced ISDs to really jack up their rates. And so it's interesting. So like, he's kind of brought that up some on the trail. And I keep like meaning to like really kind of focus on that issue. But I think you're right. I think mm -hmm. this is a kind of the issue. You, you watch what happens in October and November as people are getting their property tax bills. And once again, it's like this wily coyote versus the roadrunner thing where the Republicans in the legislature said, we cut your property taxes. And once again, <laughs> nope, 
you didn't do it for a lot no. of people. Some people are going to get a tax cut. You know, the way these last rounds of tax cuts happen in the Texas legislature have been absolutely inconsistent in how they're getting applied around the around the state right now. You can have some people in Austin who are going to get a cut in their property taxes. Yay, congratulations right. Austin. If mm-hmm. you're in Williamson County, you're probably going to get a $1,000 to $2,000 increase. In San Antonio mm-hmm. and Bear County, your rates are going to go up. It's like there's all kinds of reasons for this. You know, it's, it's like, you know, Houston, you might get a, you know, some are going to get a cut. Some, maybe not so much. It's like, so it's going to be right. so inconsistent. And yet you're going to have Republicans running around saying, hey, I cut your taxes. And there's nothing that makes people more irritated when you own a home and you tell them, hey, I cut your taxes. Then you open your bill and you got more to pay. It's like, don't tell right. me you cut my taxes when I'm looking right. at a bill that says it's gone up. It's like you can't yeah. play that game with educated people who own homes. <laughs> it's not going to work. Well, and I think the the shifting sand on this for Republicans is that over the years in this state, as Lieutenant Governor Patrick has pushed this issue for, gosh, going on 15, 20 years, even before he was in elected office, before he was even a state senator, he was pushing the issue of property taxes on the radio in Houston for his conservative radio audience. Um, the demographics in the areas where people are homeowners are shifting in such a way that there are a lot more people who are homeowners who are open to voting for Democrats. And you see that in the suburbs all over the place, in the kind of you know places you're talking about. Uh, here where I am in Dallas, Fort Worth, you see a lot of people in Tarrant County, which is shifting more toward the Democrats. You see it in Denton County, Collin County, down in Houston in uh, Fort Bend County, Williamson and Hayes counties that you talked about, Comal County down there near Bear County, and all of that. Now, Whitley was not the only Republican to say, and this again, this is why it's interesting, He's not the only one to say that he's a GOP office holder who's going to vote for a Democrat for lieutenant governor against Dan Patrick. Uh, Kel Seliger, Amarillo, pretty conservative. He says, hey, Patrick behaves like a dictator in the Texas Senate. Dan Patrick is simply an extremist and uh, he doesn't even follow the rules of the Senate and threatens the people in the Senate who don't agree with him or in his party. Vindictiveness, which is one of his most profound characteristics, is not an element of leadership. It's an element of dictatorship. Harsh words from Senator Seliger, who, again, has been someone who clashed a lot with Lieutenant Governor Patrick. Uh, But I do think that the average voter didn't know anything about that. So now when they hear this, they think, oh, wow, Miss Scratcher chin a little bit and think, well, it's a Republican voting for a Democrat. Seems a little weird to me. It has to be a little disorienting. Uh, Jason Whiteley at WFAA, again, let me go back to his reporting. He's been all over this. He asked Collier, who's running against Patrick, if he thinks this is just a couple of sort of disgruntled Republicans or is it something bigger? Oh, I think so. I think so. I mean, uh, you know, Jason, I've been running around the state now for quite a long time. And when I travel the state, I talk to Democrats, of course, but I also talk to independents. I also talk to Republicans. I've got a lot of Republicans in my personal life, in my professional life. And I've spoken to those guys many times. No, I think they're concerned about the direction of the state. You know, the lieutenant governor has outsized influence on where we go as a state, and we are not headed in the right place. For example, Glenn Whitley is very concerned about property taxes. He's very concerned about local control. He ought to be. So am I. Jeremy. As these Republicans started to come out and say they were going to vote for the Democrat, a couple of people asked me, well, is this some kind of a concerted effort? Is there some orchestration going on with these Republicans? And my answer was, well, believe it or not, there is a Democratic campaign for lieutenant governor. 
in Texas. <laughs> um, so Collier was sort of asked that question by uh, Whiteley on WFA. Well, sometimes it's okay to be seen walking into their office. Sometimes we meet someplace else so that really? nobody can see. Yeah, that, this, that happens. You know, but I think, you know, these are elected officials and they have constituents they're concerned about. They really, I think, partisan politics makes life difficult for them. I mean, they're just trying to make sure that we got good roads, make sure that you got, you know, law enforcement to make sure the budget makes sense. And they, they hear me come around and we just talk about the numbers and what's it take to have good policy in the state. They, they seem very welcoming to me. Here is where it really gets fascinating to me, Jeremy. I do believe that this is getting in the lieutenant governor's head, that we have some Republicans forcefully coming out and saying that Republicans should not vote for him. And one thing that I think might be effective on this, and who knows, it maybe it won't move the needle that much at all. Although I would say Tarrant County in particular is not an insignificant county in the state. If you have a prominent Republican in Fort Worth saying that you should not vote for the Republican in the general election, that can maybe not make up the whole campaign difference, but it can make a difference. It can move the needle. Um, it's in Patrick's head. Do you ever remember the lieutenant governor of this state, Dan Patrick, openly just attacking his opponents in the past when he was up for reelection? In, in the past, four years ago, he wouldn't even mention the Democrat who was running against him, right? Yeah. And now I turn on the TV, I turn on the TV in Lubbock, KAMC. And the news anchor there is Ryan Chandler. He was talking to Dan Patrick, who's on his bus tour with that double-decker bus that looks like a Las Vegas limo on the inside. And Ryan Chandler asked Patrick about Collier attacking his record on property taxes, school vouchers, and the power grid. My opponent, Mike Collier, he was a senior advisor to Joe Biden. He says publicly that there's no daylight between him and Joe Biden. I don't think Lubbock or West Texas or Texas wants to vote for a local Joe Biden as the lieutenant governor. He is for repealing photo voter ID, which he says he'll do. Uh, we passed a bill that boys can't play girls sports. He thinks that's wrong. He wants to repeal that bill so that boys can play girls sports. We don't think that's right. He wants to demolish the oil and gas industry, and he wants to keep the border open because, again, his words, not mine, Joe Biden's policies are pragmatic and good for Texas. That's just a joke. It's a joke, and the people of Texas aren't going to buy it. Earlier in the week at quorumreport.com, we had reported out that several top GOP state senators had received calls from the lieutenant governor. Um, and apparently Patrick was telling them that they may need to plan for how they're going to run the Texas Senate in case he loses to Collier, that his polls show, and this was the reporting, that his poll, that Patrick's poll, his internal campaign poll shows that the governor is maybe going to get a scare from Beto, but he's going to win. But when you go down ballot, that Patrick and Attorney General Paxton, that both of both of them, Patrick and Paxton, have real races that are true toss-ups. Now, the spokesman for Patrick said that, no, 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 our poll is solid, and it shows what it's always showed. There's no slippage, and you know he's going to win. When I asked Alan Blakemore, the chief strategist, for a copy of their poll, because here's what I said, Jeremy. I said, do you think we should publish one of your internal polls at the Patrick campaign to give people some assurance of what you're saying? <laughs> and he said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We're going to take a pass on that. Um, the thing that I think was most interesting in that report was that Patrick's also telling those, those same senators to cool it on the talk of school vouchers because that is not – a winning issue in rural Texas. And the way, of course, that Republicans talk about it in, in the rural counties is a little different. So I thought it was interesting that after I reported that at Quorum Report, 
that Patrick was telling senators to, you know, tamp down their talk of school vouchers, I turn on the TV in Lubbock and I'm watching that same interview with Ryan Chandler. And there's Dan Patrick doing what? He's tamping down the talk of school vouchers. And it's not about vouchers. You know, the Democrats like to use that word. Oh, it's in fact, Mike Collier said vouchers are for vultures. That's what he called parents who want freedom of choice and, you know, parental rights. Uh, that was those were that's how he closed the speech at the convention. Vouchers are for vultures. I don't think parents are vultures, but that's what the Democrats believe. And so we're going to protect all the rural schools. We're not going to they're not going to lose any money where we need. We need options for parents, particularly is in our inner cities where we have a tremendous dropout rate, failing schools. We cannot have a state of two classes of citizens, those that have a public education or an education and those who do not. So uh, they just like, you know, it's just they like to pull that out every year. School vouchers have been something that is very close to the heart of Lieutenant Governor Patrick over the years. Have you ever watched uh, where he would attend one of the rallies, Jeremy, where they uh, they put on the the yellow uh, yep. scarf for whatever that thing they put on the yellow over their clothes to talk about school choice and school vouchers? The Texas Senate, under Patrick's leadership, uh, has passed school voucher. Uh, programs that have died in the Texas House of Representatives in the Texas House. It's a much heavier lift to try to pass a bill like that. Earlier in the year, as we reported here, uh, the governor, Greg Abbott, kind of put Republicans in, uh, I think, in a bit of a pinch when he said that he was going to support a robust school voucher program, something that would move money out of the public education system and into school choice to have that money flow to private institutions. Of course, the governor could not answer questions about particulars of that when he was in the same place in Lubbock. Interesting how Lubbock is so key to a lot of these debates. Uh, uh, the governor was on the Chad Hasty radio show uh, in Lubbock right after he announced his school voucher support. And he couldn't answer basic things like, what about private institutions that don't want any tax dollars because they worry about the government then telling them what kind of things they can teach and not teach in their classrooms. Um, the lieutenant governor is running a different kind of race than I've seen him run in the past, Jeremy. And to the point that you're making about the governor's race, I think it's maybe even more important in some of these down ballot races for one key reason. This is the first midterm in Texas in which we don't have one punch straight ticket voting. And so we really, if anybody tells you they know exactly how that's going to work out, they're getting way, way out ahead of their skis, as they say, way over their skis. And I think you may have a race for governor in which Abbott is very motivated to pour all of his resources into just one thing, telling people vote for Greg Abbott, not necessarily telling people to vote Republican up and down the ballot. I don't know that they're going to do that. And I haven't seen a lot of that from them so far. And because it's, you know, uh, no more uh, one straight one punch straight ticket voting because we don't have that in a lot of ways, it's every man for himself. And so Patrick is really having to be, uh, you know, a lot more aggressive than we've seen him in the past in his statewide campaigns in the general election. Yeah, that's a really important point. We've talked about this some in the past. It's like, you know, remember in 2018, you know, when Governor Abbott was running for re-election and Dan Patrick was, you had all those congressional races that were super competitive. So you had Republicans and Democrats trying to push, you know, voter turnout. And then you had the U.S. Senate race that was trying to drive turnout. And you had the national uh, uh, Republicans in uh, Washington, D.C., trying to get the turnout up. So you had all these different political wings trying to get the turnout up and get Republicans to the to the to vote. This time mm -hmm. around, there's only one game in town. 
It's the governor's race. There's no U.S. Senate race on this thing. There is no right. real competitive congressional races almost anywhere in Texas, except for you know down in the valley and down out along the Texas border. There's a couple of races there. But so the bulk of all of the turnout is going to be driven because of the governor's race. That puts guys right. like Ken Paxton, the attorney general, and Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, in kind of an awkward situation. They don't have either the name recognition or the money to drive turnout on their own mm -hmm. without Greg Abbott doing stuff too. It's like they are tied at the hip, whether they like it or not. And yet they're also both less popular than even Abbott. Just look at the 2018 results. Greg Abbott vastly outperformed both of them even in places like Harris County, where Dan Patrick is from Harris County, and he did demonstrably worse than Greg Abbott did there. Same thing with Ken Paxton. And so you, you have a situation where these guys are just like they they know the problem here going into this. Who's going to turn out and who's going to drive them to get to the polls? That's the big question. That's what you know, going back to what you said, if anybody knows how this is playing out, you know, congratulations, because, you know, super mm -hmm. you know, experts on this who've been watching Texas for as long as we have, you know, we don't know what the turnout's going to look like in this turn in this midterm. Like, is it going to be like 2018, you know, when we had all kinds of stuff happening? Was mm -hmm. that the beginning of like a new trend for midterms or was it one off because of Beto? But wait, Beto's on this ballot. So does that mean it's mm -hmm. a two off? Uh, who knows? Lots of questions Yellow about this. Off. And you can kind of feel everybody in politics right now is getting on edge because they know the one thing we know is closer than they're used to being yep. in. And it's making guys like Dan Patrick do stuff by the book, you know, <laughs> which is like right. go after your opponent, make him sound like Joe Biden. You know, something like you mentioned that we never would have heard him say in 2018 or in 2014 right. or any other time maybe in Texas history going back to the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Beto on the ballot again. I, I would say I agree with the analysis, uh, analysis of our uh, senior senator, John Cornyn, about 2018. And what he said was that it was basically three things that were that was that was you know, all in the mix. Those things were in the mix. Um, one was backlash to President Trump. It was his midterm. Two, backlash to Senator Cruz, who even some of his own Republican colleagues in the Senate have said has the most punchable face in the U.S. Senate. And three is this guy who kind of comes out of El Paso that most people have never heard of before and kind of sets the political world on fire uh, in Beto O'Rourke. Um, I think to some degree, at least two of those things are still happening. Beto's on the ballot. And one thing that we haven't said is Trump will not go away. He is part of American life in a way that no former president, certainly in the very next term of the next president or in that first term of the next president, it, that's never happened uh, quite in that way. The, the, the former guy, quote unquote, always goes away and, and does that, you know, for reasons of tradition does it because they have been in the White House making you know some of the most consequential decisions, not just in the country, but on the on the entire planet, and they don't need the last person second guessing everything that they do, right? They don't do that. But one of the net effects of that, I don't think this was planned by former presidents, but one of the net effects is the next person in office is then on the hook for everything. Right. Joe Biden should be on the hook for everything. He should be on the hook for the immigration issues we're talking about. He should be on the hook for uh, inflation and the economy. And he is in many ways. But because Trump just won't go away, it's almost like and I've said this before, but 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 it's almost like another midterm for him, too. It's almost like competing midterms, like it's the midterm for Biden. But it's also another midterm for Trump because he won't go away. And look, when it's the Trump issues like immigration, 
and like bringing your jobs back from overseas and things like that, Republicans tend to do better. But when the issue is Trump himself, and we have two cycles to prove what I'm about to say, in 2018 it was true, and in 2020 it was true. When the issue is Trump himself, Jeremy, Republicans do worse. And I'm just looking at the results. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not making a value judgment even. I'm just saying when Trump's the issue, Republicans lose. Yeah, and can you imagine somewhere W is sitting there going, somebody get this guy a canvas and some paints. Pick up a hobby, you know, it's like where you're away from everything. Remember, George W. Bush just went in like full painter mode and totally yes. disappeared during the Obama uh, era. It was never the issue in the Obama midterm. So when when right. Obama got destroyed over you know, health care reform and lost his majority, right. it was all in Obama. It wasn't like W going, oh, right. by the way, remember Iraq? Let me tell you about how great Iraq was. You know, imagine how nightmarish right. that would have been. It's like, and, and I can just imagine W is kind of leaning it over to Laura Bush going, hi, at least I knew, you know, when to pick up a hobby. And here's Trump running around, <laughs> you know, right. gathering the attorneys on a golf course outside of DC to plan their next attack. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are y'all doing? It's just freaking people what? out oh, no. in the suburbs that you might be on your way back. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, Bush, you know, he just kind of chilled out here in Dallas where I am today for the most part just you know just kind of took it easy probably went up to the family compound and uh, kind of bunk port now and then and and just took it easy yes when, when um when bush and the republicans got wiped out in 06 remember uh bush at that time said uh you know that the, the very next day after the election uh former governor bush and president bush said uh the republicans we took a texas thumping yep. last night after they just after they lost everywhere and in 2010 bush was out of there and it was all on Obama, and Democrats were losing all over the place. They probably lost more offices. I think by the numbers, Democrats more lost more offices during Obama's time in office than they ever had before. You know, just all over the country, in state legislatures, congressional seats, etc. And it was all on Obama. It was all backlash to him. With Biden, he's getting this sort of gift yes. from Trump that, and he's getting this gift that that people are are kind of questioning whether or not. Uh, they should go with Republican leadership when so many Republicans are still, you know, basically holding their political fortunes so close to the former president. Um, here's an example of some of that playing out. The, the Republican civil war, uh, as it were, which we've been covering for many, many years. And it keeps getting nastier and nastier, grosser and grosser and more into so far out of the mainstream that you wonder where it ends. It's a downward spiral for everybody. I know that one of your favorite entertainers online, Jeremy, is this guy Alex Stein, who's oh, yeah. also from here in the Dallas, also from here in the Dallas area, and he's been confronting various uh, members of Congress and other people about different things. You know, he first got sort of famous from the appearances he would make at different uh, local government meetings. He would go to Dallas City Council, Plano City Council. I think he went to some other states as well. I saw he was in Las Vegas, and he was doing one of his songs, one of his raps for for the Las Vegas city council and doing a big comedy bit there. I will say some of those were not that bad. Some of them were, were pretty funny. I think we played some of them here on the show. Like here's this emerging uh, comedy guy from Texas who's, who's doing some, some interesting work. Well, he has just gone off the deep end. He, Alex Stein running around, he says he works for the blaze, which is uh, Glenn Beck's operation. And he was in Washington uh, this past week to confront representative Dan Crenshaw. Jeremy, it's a Dan Crenshaw update. Once again here. And they're walking around on the streets of D.C. near the Capitol. And what you will hear here is uh, Crenshaw and Alex Stein 
going back and forth about, and you heard this at the Republican convention in Houston, where Stein and others were accusing Crenshaw of being a globalist, somebody who wants to sell out America, right? Well, the two of them are walking along, talking at each other, kind of Jack John and uh, insulting each other. And they walk up to some folks who are representing the group uh, Wounded Warriors. And Crenshaw kind of draws that crowd into the conversation they're having. And you listen to the insults here that get thrown around. Yeah, imagine me calling you out because you're a nihilist, you're a globalist. Oh, I got a job, I work for the place. I got. I make a lot of money, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do, Dan. Yeah, I make a lot of money. Yeah, oh, I'm a loser. This is the guy, this is the guy who tells veterans that they're, that they're service. Yeah, this, yeah, because there's a weapons of mass destruction that didn't yeah, exist, so I'm anti-war. Yeah. Yeah, I'm anti-war because he's I don't believe. This, did you guys find any weapons of mass destruction? Right As a matter of fact, yeah. we did. Oh, where was? Oh, what weapons of mass destruction? This you're, guy. You're actually going to go down this route, Alex. Yeah, because we don't you're have any weapons of mass looking, destruction. You're looking like a fool right now. Dude, I'm you're the telling fool. veterans, you're the one that's getting not more just money me, to Ukraine. We have a homelessness. We have so many issues here in America. Who cares more about Ukraine? Yeah, it was. You guys' service was wasted. You're disgusting. You hear Crenshaw there say to Stein, "You're." disgusting. Uh, more and more, these sort of right-wing media figures uh, just become more and more inflamed all the time, Jeremy, more and more um, just outrageous with their comments. This is what, this is what get, this, it's what gets clicks. It, it, it's what makes your video go viral, you know, that you, that you have this sort of almost violent confrontation, which remember at the Republican convention seemed like it might become violent um, when, when Stein uh, took on Crenshaw well, and some other people. Uh, but it's, it really is just completely uh, unacceptable uh, discourse. It is, of course, uh, fanned. The, the flames are fanned by Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel, who runs around saying that we should not be helping the Ukrainians, uh, you know, battle Russia, which Ronald Reagan would have said, of course, is the evil empire. Uh, he would be spinning in his grave now to hear some of these things that are said on the quote unquote Fox News Channel, the quote unquote conservative news channel. Uh, and it was Tucker Carlson, I believe, who first called uh, Dan Crenshaw Patch McCain. Well, where did that come from? It, it, Tucker didn't start that thought, right? It was Donald Trump himself who made fun of John McCain on the campaign trail and made fun of his service in Vietnam, where, of course, McCain, if anybody needs a refresher on this, was a POW, was a prisoner of war. That's the kind of thing, Jeremy, that if, if previously, if a Republican had said, um, you know, that they thought that someone like John McCain's service was a joke and they made fun of John McCain, that would have ended their campaign that day. But of course, Trump popularized that kind of thing, and it continues now, and I don't think that it's going to get better anytime, uh, anytime soon. Well, okay. First of all, I got to say, I, I'm starting to get a little worn out with these Blaze TV comedians. You know, how many comedic yes. personalities are they going to, you know, give the state of Texas? Remember the guy who ran for governor, you know? Okay, but moving on. So the thing about Alex Science, mm -hmm. like that, that incident back in Houston did have some repercussions. So the Houston Police Department did get called in, and they have written a report up on that incident, uh, they they're still trying to get Alex Stein. Uh, apparently, mm -hmm. when he was doing that thing, they actually knocked over somebody who was within uh, you know Crenshaw's entourage, uh, Sue Walden, who's a treasurer for a oh, lot yeah. of the campaigns. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, for Crenshaw, like she ended up getting injured during the thing. The police filed a report. They weren't able to get Alex Stein because he had already fled the scene before they had a chance to kind of write him up. Uh, but they have a police report waiting to talk to him, you know, the next time he's back through Houston. So it's like there's some, you know, some issues there right now, personality wise that like, you know, this is going to go on for a while. But like and then right. you know, finally, 
circling back to like, you know, the, the connection to Tucker Carlson is absolutely with a gigantic exclamation point. You know, look at the connections here. You have Alex Stein, who's bent on, you know, Tucker Carlson's show and wants to be mm-hmm. little Tucker Carlson. You can kind of see it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, and he's parroting the same things Tucker Carlson said about iPad McCain literally the yep. week after Tucker Carlson first said it. He started talking yeah. about it. And so you can see right. this guy really wants to, you know, I, I think a lot of people are going to start trying to follow <laughs> Tucker Carlson in his right. route, you know, where you just like get loud, get messy, yep. you know, get into yep. these people's faces, call them names, startle people. And so, and so now you have this like, you know, this weird three-legged, you know, kind of stool against Dan Crenshaw <laughs> right now, which is Tucker Carlson, Alex Stein, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are just kind of filtering stuff between the three of them. And constantly trying to go after Crenshaw. And it's just like, it's kind of a weird dynamic to watch the Republican Party have this thing where like, can uh, and nobody can get in between them and say, can y'all chill out and kind of draw right. some fire on the Democrats for a little mm-hmm. bit? You know, let's go after Joe Biden instead of kind of making this an all Republican weird show. <laughs> Well, and it's something that Republicans created, you know, over the years through rhetoric on various issues. And when you continue to reward bad behavior, you get more of it. Right. I mean, this is what happens. Uh, and and uh, you give good ratings to and look, uh, the, the people who run Fox News would say, you know, we're earning good ratings. Um, I would say it doesn't make it news, though. Right. This is a, it's a show that there, a guy like Tucker Carlson is doing a show. He's a performer. In some ways, maybe he's like a comedian, like like Alex Stein, but they're not doing news. And we have this real, we have this real problem in this country of people thinking that certain things are news when they're not. And of course, you know, journalism, we've got plenty to answer for, right? But, but when you have a guy calling um, a, a Republican representative, I patch McCain, and what it says on the screen is news, there's a serious problem there. The other thing I would say about it is that, look, not only is this not going to get any better, I think that it's going to get worse and worse and worse uh, as we go forward, uh, because there is no incentive to do to do any better uh, when you, everybody clicks on it. Everybody, you know, we're talking about it right now, yeah. but for a reason, because here, here's why we're talking about it, because this is what Republicans have to put up with as they are to a point you made. They're, they're having to put up with this at their own infighting. While we're going into a general election when they should be training their political fire on Democrats if they're going to beat them in what has become a much more competitive year than a lot of people expected. If you go back six months ago, we would have handicapped every I would have handicapped everything for the Republicans in the state. um, And I still do. But here's the thing. The Democrats are making up ground and it's happening pretty quickly here. And you have the Republican Party chairman, Matt Rinaldi telling me that I live in an alternate reality to think that Republicans are fighting with each other. And all I would have to do is play the audio that you just heard uh, of Republicans literally screaming insults at each other, you know, on the steps of the Capitol. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not here to tell people whether they should, you know, be on Alex Stein's side or Dan Crenshaw's side or whatever, but it's like oh, a I good am. reminder to people who are new, who are just kind of paying attention to Dan Crenshaw. Remember the reason he's wearing an eye patch is because he was blown up in Afghanistan uh, while serving the country as a Navy SEAL. It was just 10 years ago uh, where he lost mm-hmm. some of his best friends and nearly died. It's, it, we're talking almost on the 10 year anniversary of that all happening to the guy. And so to 
call him eye patch McCain is it's like I'm always like especially when it's a you know you know a, a, a dude who clearly has never served a day in his life in uniform it's like it's kind of mm-hmm. okay to respect people whether you disagree with their politics or not it's okay to respect them when they literally gave an eye for your country after we were attacked on 9-11 I think it's okay to give a little respect there you can still call him a globalist and whatever you want but you know, cut the mm-hmm. eye patch McCain stuff. You know, the guy did something that I'm not sure how many of us would be willing to give what he right. had to give to his country because of what happened after 9-11. It's like, yeah. come on now. Let's let's be serious about what we're talking about. Yeah. If you want to be taken seriously, act serious. Try that. Uh, if you enjoy this show, you know you do. What you should do is pass along the word to other people. Share it across your social media platforms. The uh, it's it's better than sharing an Alex Stein video. That's that's just my opinion, but I'm biased. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to the show. Uh, I'll get accused of bias anyway. Why don't I just own it? Um, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. However you listen to your favorite podcast, we don't judge you, but you should judge us. Give us the best rating that you can, or give us the worst one. I want to see your complaints. How about it? Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time.